Hello from the newsroom of the Financial Times in London, I'm Josh Noble. Today we're looking at the financial crisis 10 years on and asking the question, has the culture of banking changed? In this report, Gillian Tett, our US managing editor, talks to some of the leading figures in charge of banking at the time to find out what lessons have been learnt. Ten years ago, the world was rocked by a financial crash, and I was reporting from the FT newsroom. In the last decade, there has been extensive debate about how and why the crisis happened. But I believe the crucial issue that is often ignored is culture. Personally, I've always been fascinated by culture since I trained as an anthropologist before I became a journalist. But before 2008, I'd sometimes feel embarrassed to tell bankers or regulators about this background, since it seemed that the only thing that mattered was maths or economics or astrophysics. But these days, that's changed. Now, there's a growing recognition that we need to look at culture, not just at computers. Ten years ago, Alan Greenspan was a central banker among central bankers. He was called the maestro because he was seen as being all-powerful and having a really good sense of how the economy and the financial system was working. He championed the idea of using models, that free markets were self-healing and would always allocate resources to where they needed to go. However, he later admitted to a flaw in his thinking. Yes, I found a flaw. I don't know how significant or permanent it is, but I've been very distressed by that fact. You found a flaw in the reality? A flaw in the model that I perceived is the critical functioning structure that defines how the world works, so to speak. In other words, you found that your view of the world, your ideology, was not right. It was not working. Precisely. I spoke to Alan Greenspan recently and asked him to elaborate on what he now sees as the flaw in his thinking. What... I hadn't been aware of is the fact that my self-interest was actually conceptually wrong. I originally assumed that people were acting wholly rationally or, if not wholly rationally, closely approximate to that. That is factually inaccurate. One of the most extraordinarily important issues that I've seen in the marketplace is how powerful fear is, has differentiated from euphoria. And the data show it very clearly. That is, people in the stock market, for example, tend to uh, sell much more rapidly, much more heavily, and are frightened so that they pull back. Whereas euphoria, that is a much slow, drawn-out process. I thought I knew about as much as you could know about markets, going all the way back into the the last century, but uh, I was mistaken. Do you think that the culture of finance and markets has changed since the crisis? It's changed a lot of people's views. (laughs) It's really quite extraordinary when you go back and look at the Wall Street forecasting groups, the various different banks were publishing all sorts of data. Nobody got it right. There are lots of people who say they did. Thank you. No. (laughs) It was striking that the financial crash appeared to come as a surprise to central bankers on both sides of the Atlantic and that more wasn't done to avert the crisis. 
I mean, that something as small as the US subprime market could bring down the whole of global finance is incredible. Ex-Deputy Governor of the Bank of England, Paul Tucker, is, like Alan Greenspan, able to see the flaws in the thinking of the time. London, over there, the Bank of England lost influence over the banking system because that function was taken away. And in the Fed, in the US, the Greenspan Fed lost interest in it because he personally, that wasn't where his heart was, that wasn't where he went in every morning. So are you basically arguing the problem with finance is that bankers will always be greedy and always go mad because that's just kind of the culture of money and the issue is that actually the central banks should try and keep control of that? Is that there's, what you're saying? There's a dynamic that pushes banking and the penumbra of banking to excess. It doesn't mean everyone goes in every day and tries to drive the coach over the edge of the cliff, but that's in it always. And it isn't even to do with the extraordinary amounts of money they are now paid for doing something that isn't so terribly difficult. So if that's a given, the big questions are, well, why do we allow banking at all? Given that we do allow it and we're going to carry on allowing it, then we need independent authorities who will ensure that the system is resilient. One of the things that we learned during the financial crisis was that behavior and conduct at financial institutions played a critical role in outcomes. And we can look at things like the scandals around LIBOR and foreign exchange trading and sales practices, all of which had a behavioral component. And that led us to shine a spotlight on behavior and conduct at firms, which is driven at a root cause level by the culture at the firms. That was Kevin Stiro of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, which, along with the Banking Standards Board in the UK, has been trying to observe, measure and improve bank culture. But Mr Greenspan is not convinced the bank chief executives have got the message. If you were advising the CEOs of banks today, what would you tell them about building a better culture or handling the cultural question? I don't think they'd understand what I was talking about. In fact, I know that. But is it really true that banking CEOs were not and are still aren't thinking about culture? You know, culture is the single most important thing in any organization, whether it's government uh, or private sector, and it's no different in financial services. That was Bob Diamond, former chief executive of Barclays and regarded by many as one of the fat cats of the pre-crisis era. What I worry about is that we get the right balance between a safer and sounder financial system with one that can still promote jobs and economic growth. And so uh, we need the culture within banking of a willingness to take risk on behalf of clients, a willingness to lend into the economy. And that's how we get stronger economies, and that's how we get uh, job creation. And so that responsible risk-taking is, is the critical piece. But how do you create a culture of responsible risk-taking? I think you never want to go to one extreme or the other. So are the regulators important? Of course. Can we count on the regulators to be managing the banks? No. Leadership matters. You said in public a few years ago that you thought the time for remorse was over. It's time to move on. Do you think that's still the case? <laughs> that is not what I said. Oh, okay. That is what you quoted me as saying. Um, and I think there were two things at the time that, that were missed. One was the context. Uh, the context of when I said that was in early 2011. 
and it was specifically, it's time to pass the mantle of growth, the mantle of uh, growth to the private sector from the public sector. And do you think people thought enough about culture in the past, or did they just ignore it? You know, every bank might have been different. I know in our institution, it was something that we thought about every single day. Um, and I think in many institutions, that would be the case as well. It was a risk-taking culture within some institutions that was blamed for creating the bubble that would soon burst, especially within the lending industry, and in particular as subprime mortgage lenders such as Countrywide. Every one of them was turned down for a home loan by three different lenders. I'm with Countrywide and I got them all approved. Michael Winston was an executive at Countrywide Financial in 2008 and was one of the very few people to blow the whistle on the culture he found there when he joined in 2005. He paid a heavy price. And I said, who do you usually hire? And he said, bottom quartile, low-level schools. Why would you do that? They're hungrier. Maybe we're the only ones who would hire them. Yes, why would you want to do that? Well, because those people are pliable. They'll do whatever we tell them to do. They say jump, you say how high. That was the countrywide culture. You know, countrywide had 65,000 people. I saw people deliberately look the other way. Well, I was going to look at it, and I was going to either set it right or contact the government officials, and I did. Michael claims that there was a culture at Countrywide where staff were encouraged to seek risky subprime loans without concern for the overheating housing market or threat to the economy. A culture of greed and fear. People are afraid to sound the alarm because of companies like Countrywide that retaliate instead of praise the person's courage and bravery. Don't shoot the messenger. So are we any safer now than we were a decade ago? I put the question to Bob Diamond, Paul Tucker, and Michael Winston. I think banks are safer and sounder, uh, particularly the systemic banks are safer and sounder. We're nine years into an economic recovery from probably the deepest, darkest recession we have ever seen since 1929. My worry is, have we, have we still got the policy tools on the uh, monetary side and the fiscal side if we have a crack in corporate credit? we won't be able to spot where the next crisis comes from. The question is, is the system resilient enough when the shock hits? And then if it proves resilient, it'll still be bad. Recessions are bad, but not all recessions end up in a massive collapse with social, cultural, political, even constitutional consequences. I believe there will be another financial crisis. I don't think it. I know it. Bowen deep deep in my heart, because the same half-truths and empty promises and outright lies are being told by executives and financial services firms. A decade after the financial crisis, what did we really learn? Well, we learned that finance does not function without trust or faith or credit in the old-fashioned Latin sense of the word. And we learned that trust cannot be predicted with mere models. Do you think that we are in another bubble period which will have another market crash or a crisis? We're actually in a somewhat different type of world now. We've basically run into a populist environment. Populism, I don't think that is a rational approach 
to develop economic economies. It's a scream of pain. So, could trust crack again in finance? Maybe. Parts of the financial system today are certainly a lot healthier. Other parts are not. However, maybe the really big question we should also ask is what about trust in the wider political economy? Because these days we live in an era of growing populism and protest and anger. This can't all be blamed on the financial crisis, but in some ways it is the next stage of the drama. And that is why leaders of all stripes today need to relearn that lesson that trust is crucial. To build it, you have to understand how human culture works. And once trust or credit is lost, it's very hard to regain. That was Gillian Tett, the FT's US managing editor. This podcast is adapted from a video produced by Juliet Riddell, and you can find a link to the video in our show notes. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with more news tomorrow. In the meantime, if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, take a look at our latest subscription offers at ft.com forward slash offer. The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Bryant, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.